Jason Dorsey is a researcher who specializes in generational findings and research and you know how boomers affect are affected how Gen X how uh, Millennials etc and he said undeniably their research shows that there are two factors that affect every generation every generation has this in common the top two factors that affect how every generation views their world is number two is technology that's not a new thing those of you who are now in your 70s, you were affected by the technology of television that emerged in the 1950s, right? And today, the millennial generation has is, is certainly been affected by the emergence of, of, the, uh, of smartphone technology, etc. But the number one factor, he says, that our research shows that affects generation is parenting. You cannot get around it. It is the clear number one factor. Friends, I ask you, is parenting big or what? If you're feeling the pressure of parenting and you sometimes wonder, do I have what it takes and, and the wisdom that it requires, the navigational wisdom, because this life is a highway fraught with potential crashes, uh, you're not making it up. It is so big. I was thinking this week when I was in eighth grade, I don't know why, but I, I signed up to do a science fair project. It was the middle of basketball season, and so when I got into it, I realized, oh, man, I don't want to do this. But I had signed up to do this science fair project on my new uh, emerging love, great white sharks, Carcharodon carcarius. I was going to do this. So I, I built this mechanical shark that when you move the tail, the jaw opened and closed, and it looked just like a great white shark. And I worked real hard. But I remember this. I'll never forget this. The night before... I, it was due. The night before I was due my presentation of my science fair project that would change all research on Carcharodon carcarius, uh, I just didn't want to finish it. I was just, I was sitting at the dining room table. I had all this stuff in front of me. I just did not want to finish it. It was late. I was tired. And I'll never forget my dad coming into the dining room. And he was standing about right here. And he said, but well, before you quit, you need to remember hard work always pays off it always pays off and that was just the final push I needed to get over the the quit you know get bust through the quitting point because that's where character development is found is when you burst through quitting points and just do that extra well uh, I got a 40 out of 40 on that science fair project I got a perfect score now, before you're too impressed with me, that was the same year that I got an F in conduct. That was actually about an, at the same time. So don't give me too much credit there. It's just like I was just, a, I, was, I was acting out. This is what they say. And, and still to this day, for, for, I've done thousands of sermons. And you receive these on the basis of your place in life. But I can tell you this, there have been hundreds and hundreds of times where I just, it's Friday, and I just don't want to just go to that next level of pushing it through and raising it a grade level, and I can still hear my dad behind me. I can still hear my dad behind me. Hard work always pays off. And I'm, I'm not very gifted, but because of my dad mostly, I have grit. I do have grit. When he was dying in 2009, I went over to Zanesville to the Bethesda Hospital a number of times a week. I'm so glad I did that, by the way. And we had talks, and 
as, as I joked a few weeks ago, I was the fourth of five kids, so I don't even know what I looked like as a child because they didn't take pictures of my sister, my younger sister and I. And, you know, I just, and so to some extent, I just don't have good mirrors. I don't have the ability to accurately evaluate myself. I, I really resonate with the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, I don't, I don't judge others. I do not even judge myself, he said. You know, I'm not qualified. I'm not. And so as my dad is in his hospital bed, I said, Dad, what was I like as a kid? What was I like? I don't, I don't know. I don't really remember. Like, what I was really like? I know what I liked. What was I like? And I was 47 years old. And I can quote for you what he said next. He said, you were the most thorough child I have ever seen. And I loved you for that. And I was 47 years old. And that helped me so much. He said, you came out of the womb wanting to win and hating to lose. And I loved you for that. And it was just so affirming because as a preacher, I've always felt kind of guilty for being as competitive as I am. And my dad loved me for it. Is parenting big or what, friends? It is such a huge deal. And so what we're doing in this series is saying you can either prepare the road for the child and be that snowplow parent, be that bulldozer parent, or the phrase today, the lawnmower parent. And you can make it as easy as possible, or the better option is to prepare the child for the road, that God only knows that road. God only knows the obstacles and the adversities that child is going to face. There was a... a uh, there's some adversity going on right now in this room. <laughs> Way to go, mom or dad back there. Way to go. Yeah, let's give it up. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a Colorado Springs, Colorado teacher who told about, she was a kindergarten teacher, and she told about one week she was focusing on what to do to, to protect the children in case a stranger would, would approach them. And she, she, she told them, she says, now if a stranger approaches you and if you feel afraid, you run away. But if they grab you, you kick, you bite, you hit, you scream, you do whatever you can to do to get away. And all week long she was saying, you kick, you bite, you hit, you scream. You kick, you bite, you hit, you scream. And at the end of the week she said, now students, what have you learned this week? And one little guy raised his hand and said, I've learned I'm never going to try to take someone else's kid. He said, I, I, I'm not going to do that. And so a lot of what drives our overparenting is we're wondering if we're doing enough to equip our child to face what only God knows they're going to face in their race, in their journey, right? And we have our doubts. We have doubts about ourselves. And so we tend to swing the pendulum in the other direction of how we were raised and the effects that had upon us, and we overdo it. And so this series is about finding this, this balance, really. And so we're using the tool of a matrix. Which what a matrix does is it shows the power of two equal things, and yet when one of them goes to an extreme. So if you remember, two weeks ago I said, take a picture of this. If you weren't here, you can do it now and listen to the message online. Uh, the toughness, tenderness matrix. And when, when both of them are, are trained into a child as they're growing, there is an empowerment that happens. Last weekend in part two, we looked at 
the nurture adventure matrix and the extremes and the, and the dangers that happen when we go to extremes. But when a child has a series of adventures that allow them to explore and make decisions and discover, launch from a base that is secure, there is this, this is what, this is what maturity is. Maturity is interdependence. Maturity is not independence. It's what every 15-year-old here thinks. I'm going to be mature someday and I'm on my own. No, that's interdependence is maturity. The ability, and we're seeing this now, every scientific research journal is saying, you want to prosper in this world, learn to solve problems with other people. <laughs> right? Not on your own, but learn to solve problems. You want to be valuable, you learn the skill of solving problems with other people. And that's interdependence. Right? Now, last week I asked this question. Last week I asked the question, would you rather your child be protected or be strong? And I intentionally put it in a binary framework like that because how you would answer a forced binary answer really indicates the tendency toward extreme that you will have. So if you answer that, oh my gosh, I wasn't protected as a child and I'm going to bubble wrap my child, then you're going to experience the extremes of raising a child that is very protected. But that has some implications, right? On their ability to be interdependent. Their ability to be strong. If you say, you know what? It is a tough world out there, and they've got to be strong. And you put them into the woods with water and bread for three weeks to survive on their own because you've got to be tough in this world. Well, how you answer that question really uh, illustrates what you think and the, uh, about the importance of toughness and the extremes that you will tend to go to. So what happens is, most of us know as parents who are, who are halfway sane that an infant needs protected, and so we put our hand behind their head so their, 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 their body is stabilized. Uh, a toddler needs protected, so we put our arm in front of their, their self in, at a street corner so they don't walk out into danger that they're not aware of. A kindergartner needs protection, so we equip them on how to deal with uh, dangerous situations, and we, we equip them to be prepared for that, and on and on. But if you so protect a child to the point where they get to the age of 15, and they've never really learned skills on their own independently, they, they won't have the ability to interdependently relate. They won't have the inner strength to deal with adversity. And what you have just done is you have just taken a child who was raised on a windless, sunny beach and you, threw, you will throw them one day into a hurricane. And they've never dealt with a storm. And they have no chance. And this is what happens so often with overprotective parents. If you go to the extreme of, of, of it's not a strong nurturing base of security, but oh boy, you are teaching toughness, you will tend to raise a person who cannot function in relationships. And the net result is, is no win in life. So what the scriptures do is they show us all kinds of things about parenting. But one of the things the scriptures do is show us how God parents us. And we're looking at Hebrews 12 where it says in essence that what God really cares about is raising up people who are like Jesus. And that is 
they're, they're internally tough. They have a grit. And they're externally tender. They have a grace about them. And so they have the ability on the inside to withstand adversity and to bust through quitting points. But they have on the outside a grace that allows them to interact and interdependently relate with other people. And this, this was Jesus. Jesus, it says in Luke chapter 2, grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. That some, on some level, uh, can you imagine the pressure of being Mary and Joseph? Oh my gosh, if we get this wrong, you know? But they, somehow they got it right, didn't they? To where Jesus grew in this lion and lamb reality. He was both lion and lamb. He was velvet steel. Look at these words. And I'm just going to read a few of them from Hebrews chapter 12. My dear child, don't shrug off God's training, God's discipline of your life. This is how God parents you. Don't be crushed by it either. It's a child he loves that he disciplines, the child he embraces, he corrects. God is educating you. That just simply means growing you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. One of the, one of the great tragedies of religion, many of you grew up in religious traditions that God, as Bette Medler used to say, God sees us but from a distance, right? That God is so lofty that he cannot be related to. One of the passages that strongly contradicts that is this one. God is, God knows you. He knows the hairs of your head. He doesn't have to count as far as he used to have to count for some of us, but God knows you. So enemy says, I know when a sparrow falls to the ground and you're much more than many sparrows, much more valuable. And so this passage says that God is, in the words of Psalm 139, he is acquainted with all your ways. Isn't that cool? He is both grand and macro, but he is micro. And that's why you must never drop out. I, I, and I believe this, that's, that 98% that of life, even in relationships, is the ability to persevere. It's the ability to bear up under. Every time I read that, I think about years ago. This is probably when I first started uh, speaking, teaching the Bible. I remember reading a, a commentary by a guy named Warren Wearsby, and Warren Wearsby was telling the story about a pastor. He was talking about the power of grit and perseverance. And he, was, he said he knew a pastor one time who, in 16 years, he had gone to eight different churches by his own volition. He just kept moving, kept moving, kept moving. And he said that pastor that he knew put on his resume that he had 16 years' experience in ministry. And Wearsby said, no, he didn't. He had two years' experience eight times. He had two years' experience eight times. If your child doesn't develop grit, they never develop the inner resolution to build true life, including in relationships. So, so this is why. This is all throughout the scriptures. Don't drop out. Don't drop out. He's treating you as dear children. Next verse. This trouble you're in isn't punishment. It's training. Don't ask God, why, God? Why are you punishing me? No. He says, ask God what? What are you trying to grow in me? What are you trying to grow in me? This week, I was watching an athlete who bugs the fire out of me. I don't know why I have a disdain for this particular athlete, but I see this athlete as overly dramatic. Uh, this athlete, to me, is... Uh, a bully and a prima donna. 
And so I thought I was sitting there and watching this athlete, and I said, why does this athlete bother me so much? And I said, don't answer that, Sherry. I know that the people we dislike, it says more about us than it does about the person, really. And, and I knew just sitting, I mean, like there is a disdain for this individual that borders on contempt. And I don't want to be that way, but I have to ask the question, what are you trying to tell me about my, my character? Because it does, it says something, like a strong emotion, a visceral reaction I have to this athlete. And this is the question, is not why God, why do I feel that way so much as what God are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to tell me? The normal experience of children, only irresponsible parents lead their children to fend for themselves, and certainly we don't have that problem these days. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? And rhetorically, no, is the, is the answer to that question. Next verse, we respect our own parents for training and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them. Amen. But God is doing what is best for us. And I want to close with this. Training us to live God's holy best. One translation renders that, that all that God does in your life is that you might experience an, an understanding and a joining with his holiness. That means to be different. God is utterly holy in that he is different. And so if you want to be made of the stuff of God, you have to surrender to God's training for you. That's what he wants. And the reason he wants that is this is the way to life. This is the pathway to life. What it means to follow Jesus is that you believe that. You, you really believe that Jesus' way is the way to life. It's the truth about life. Now, would you rather your child be strong or would you rather your child be protected? And God answers that question about you. He answers that question. I want to protect my child, but I also want you to learn to be strong. With my presence, with my power, with my leadership, with my guidance on your journey, on your race, I want you to be strong. And that's the same, that's the same cue that we parents take for ourselves from God. And what God is concerned about predominantly is your internal being. He knows that how you live is going to flow out of who you are. So believe it or not, God does not fret when you misbehave. God does not wring his hands in heaven and say, this child of mine. What God does is he goes to work on training you and growing you so that you can live his holy best. So this leads us to our third matrix, and this one is different. Because this matrix deals with two realities that are not equally important. They're both important, but one of them is more important than the other. So you'll notice this matrix is different. Look at it. This is the character behavior matrix. And what's different about this matrix is that the behavior characteristic is on the left side. And I want you to see this. When you have a family environment where it is high character and high behavior emphasis, you are probably overdoing it. We did a series on this about a year and a half ago called Low Pressure Systems, in which we wanted to make parents aware of the tendency to put way too much pressure on their children and to learn how to de-escalate pressure. 
because there's already so much out there. In the family unit where there is this strong emphasis, there's this constant, constant uh, analysis of and evaluation of who you are and what you do, who you are and what you do, is, it's, it's very high pressure. Now, you may do fine with this, depending on how your child is made, especially if you have a child that's naturally a tough, gritty child, that may work out. But most children are not that way. Most children are not naturally gritty. Some are. Some love to be, to be made tougher, but not very many. Not as many as we think. If you have a family environment that is low character and very much emphasizes how a person behaves and performs, you have a very high image management family. And why the reason this is critical is because identity gets formed out of this, that my value is only determined by my performance. My value is only determined by my behavior. And we see this in Christian circles a lot where a child is a pleaser, they have the pressure to behave right, and they do until they go off to college. And the actual inner character is not there. There's only been this external conformity. And, and, and many of us could picture little town squares in Ohio all over the place that have that beautiful oak tree in the middle of the town square, and one day a thunderstorm comes through, and it blows that, that giant mighty oak tree over and everyone's appalled until they see that the tree was rotted from the inside it wasn't nearly as strong as everybody thought it was and this is what happens in a family unit where there is an emphasis on how you behave how you perform the the kind of athlete the kind of artist the kind of academic you are the kind of christian kid you are this is why i respect christian schools so much because they have a very tough uh project to pull off how to grow kids in character while actually having to monitor their behavior and their behavior not determining their identity it's a very difficult thing isn't it christian school parents it's a very difficult thing if you have a family unit that really doesn't focus on character or behavior uh, you're going to have a lot of pain we don't need to spend a lot of time on that but you're going to have trouble because there's no there's no plan for toughness or tenderness there's no plan for growing a child's character. Because when you get to the point where you say, we really in this f family, we don't evaluate on the basis of what our kids do. Good kids make bad decisions. Am I right or am I right or am I right? That's how kids who are good learn to make better decisions. Is There are 16-year-old kids who make stupid decisions. It does not mean they're a bad kid. It means they're 16. That's what it means. Their brain is not formed yet. Right? And when you get a family unit where we say, you know, gang, our focus is on who you are first. And what you do only allows us to create points of connection so we can talk about what does this say about who we are. And so here's uh, just a summary of this. Proactive character development, look at these words, proactive character development is so much more effective than reactive behavior modification. So in other words, 
if, if those of you who are parents of young kids right now, you can begin to say, what we're about is to proactively create moments that affirm character traits that reflect toughness and tenderness. That's what we're going to be about. That is so much more effective than reactive behavior modification. Whoops, we blew it. Now we're going to punish the child for our mistakes, for their decisions, but for our mistakes. Look at these next words. As a matter of fact, reactive parenting behavior, behavior parenting raises the chances of deep resentment. It raises the chance of that. That does not mean you cannot discipline for behavioral problems. What it just means is if that's the point of emphasis, there's the real good chance of disconnection. But proactive character parenting raises the chances of deep connection. And here's, now I want to show you why. What I'm about to share with you, Randy Kramer gave to me, and this is the result of 30 years of research from Dr. John Gottman of the University of Washington. Dr. Gottman, he's written a book called The Boy Crisis. And in that book, he says this. He says, he's done research. Uh, he and his colleagues have studied families for 30 years from age 3, children from age 3 to age 15. And he says that often what we think of is we think that our child's future, this is the default mentality of parents in America, our child's future is dependent upon their IQ, the development of their intelligence and their abilities, their acuities, right? And so we tend to put huge points of pressure and emphasis on the issues that have to do with IQ. And what his research shows is that could not be further from the truth. And we now know, especially via Daniel Goleman, that in actuality, now in the year 2019, more than ever, your child's future is really dependent upon the development of their EQ, their emotional quotient, their emotional intelligence, their character. And so he says this, most parents have thought that, and in reality, the higher EQ creates more capacity for a higher IQ and so really really smart parents by the time a child is eight or nine ten years old they're really shifting to developing that inner person and Dr. Gottman says this there are three factors that we can that we can affirm that determine a child's future here they are one is emotion regulation the ability to say I am in charge of my emotions. My emotions are not in charge of me. Remember a year or so ago when I had the big thing of the St. Bernard dog up here pulling the kid? And what I said with that is this is what we teach in Players Box. We teach students to know that, you know, there's an old cartoon in which a child, a five-year-old kid, is taking his big St. Bernard for a walk, and the boy is saying, hey, hold on, you're my dog, I'm not your boy. And, and we teach the students Emotions can either make you their boy or you can choose to make them your dog. But you're in charge. And Dr. Gottman says the first factor in a child's future is the ability to regulate emotions. Any of you remember when you were in school, your favorite, your favorite time of day was recess, right? How many of you, your favorite time at school was recess? Raise your hand. Those of you who were not raising your hand are weird, okay? You're just, there's something wrong with you that you like school more than recess. I don't get you. 
And I remember how, you know, you'd be out there, and I know I had memories I have of being out there, and we're fighting, and we're playing football, and we're doing all this, and then the bell rings, and in five minutes, you have to be sitting at a desk. Right? You have to, be, you have to regulate your emotions. And Dr. Gottman uses that as an example of the things that wise people build in to teach children your emotions to function in society have to be regulated. You cannot just let your emotions run wild. That's number one. Number two, social relationships. Every time we hear about a mass shooting, what is the first characteristic that emerges from the shooter? Loner. Inability to relate to people. And certainly mental illness is at play there. But more than ever, we are raising a generation that does not know how to have crucial conversations, does not know how to, to deal with problem solving, that does not know how to work out conflict in a healthy way. This is why in leadership training I do with companies, more and more I'm just, I'm just talking about conversation. Isn't it amazing? Like, here's how to have Productive conversations. Why? Because Dr. Gottman says this is a predicator of success, is the ability to be interdependent in problem solving. And then this third one is no surprise, is it? The third one is delayed gratification. The famous study of the kids who could say, I'm waiting and not eating the chocolate chip cookies right now because I want more later. And the kids who said, I'm eating every single one of them right now, right? And parents, you're huge on this. You're huge on this issue of delayed gratification. Learning to say, wait. You affect your child in these three areas, more than technology, more than the schools, the schools cannot resurrect what your home is putting to death. So Dr. Gottman suggests these takeaways. Number one, be aware of your child's emotions. This is especially important for dads who tend to say emotions don't matter. Well, emotions don't matter until that child buries those emotions and the first drink they take deadens the pain of those emotions and they're gone. We wonder why so many kids, the first hit they get, they have ACL surgery, and the first hit they get of some opioid, they're gone. Why? It's because they have so buried pain. People, I remember when I had ACL surgery in 2004, and people said, this is going to be tough. And I remember they gave me an opioid. It was the happiest day of my life. I mean, what are you talking about? It scared me because I'd never been that happy before. And I got off of it immediately. Why? Because all of that pain, emotionally and physically, was gone. Why? So often it's because we're not aware of emotions. Number two, recognize emotions as an opportunity for connection that leads to character. Did you hear that song we sang today? Jesus, I need your peace. This is the hugest, the, the most huge impact Gary Sweeten has had on me is helping me realize that in leadership of any kind, the most underestimated characteristics is composure and peace. That when everybody's losing their head, you keep yours. 
Because if you do, and your child is pushing all your buttons and you lose it, that child knows they're in charge. They've got you. But when you keep your composure, in the words of our series last fall at this time, when you're able to rise above because Jesus lives in you and you have his peace, you create moments of connection. Number three, help your child verbally label their emotions. Put a, put a handle on it by saying, I know you're angry. That's okay. Number four, communicate empathy and understanding. What is the difference between empathy and sympathy? Sympathy is when you, you feel what they feel, right? So if they're crying, you start crying. You do not need to be sympathetic with your child, all right? You don't have to feel what they feel. Empathy is the ability to honor what they feel, to recognize it and not blow through it. And we're called to empathy, not sympathy. Sympathy means you're way, you, are, you, are, you are so connected at a level that is unhealthy, right? You're unhealthy. You, you, like when they go down, anybody say, have you ever heard that phrase, you're only as happy as your saddest child? Yeah, if you're codependent. Yeah, if you're codependent, you're only as happy because you know what? You're, you're so connected with them that when they go down, you go down too. No, that's not healthy. And we need to grow out of it. Empathy is the ability to say, honey, I, I'm with you, but I'm not you. I'm with your emotions, but I don't have your emotions. I'm not, I'm not you. And then this is so critical. The next one is set limits and problem solve together. This is the most powerful thing that happens when there are emotions that are running rampant is we, we are calm and then we say, let's work through this problem together. And again, if you can start this age appropriate as early as possible, you set the trend for your family that in our family, we deal with character. What's going on inside a person? Number of resources on this, because what I'm saying today certainly isn't enough. Listening for heaven's sake by Dr. Gary Sweeten. You've heard about that guy. He's not a quack. He's the real deal. Emotion-focused parenting by Dr. John Gottman. How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Faber and Maslish and Families Where Grace Is in Place. My number one favorite family book of all time by Jeff Van Vondren. Dr. Gottman says this, the magic moments for accomplishing what you want for your children happen through your positive interactions with them when they are expressing emotion. It's during these times that you have the opportunity to influence how your child feels about himself and the world around him. One of the things I want to do today as we close is just have a moment that for many of you may be the slowest moment of your week. Many of you live at such a pace, the reason that you can't have empathy for your child is you're constantly skimming, right, as a family. You're just like... You're on the surface, you're skimming, but you never, you, don't, you, you just like most of us don't have the margin in our lives now to really have empathy. And one of the things that, that I can tell you that I have deep regrets about as a parent is when our children were growing up, the church was really growing. And I often did not have the emotional energy to have empathy. There were many times where I just basically said, you need to deal with this. 
There's probably a reason that this is happening and you need to deal with it. And it was too, too weighed toward the, you need to be strong. And so would you use communion this morning as a time, 40, Psalm 4610, to be still and to quiet your soul and to listen to what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you today. As I said, for some of you who have children who are very young, this series is very timely. For others of us whose children are grown, this series is very timely because we're able to use these matrices as, as, as points of dialogue, making amends. It's not over, right? Diane Lumens wrote these words. If I had my child to raise all over again, I'd finger paint more and point the finger less. I'd do less correcting and more connecting. I'd take my eyes off my watch and watch with my eyes. I would care to know less and know to care more. I'd take more hikes and fly more kites. I'd stop playing so serious and so seriously play. I would run through more fields and gaze at more stars. I'd do more hugging and less tugging. I would be firm less often and affirm much more. I'd teach less about the love of accomplishment and more about the accomplishment of love. Amen? Let's be still and let's listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our gathering today. We give it to you in the character of Christ that you might father us this week and teach us and train us to grow inwardly to be more like Jesus, tough and tender, gritty and graceful. Speak, Lord, for your children are listening. And in Jesus we pray and everyone said, amen. See you next week for part four.